Did you hear what verse 27 says? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? You know, that is a cry of a person who feels abandoned by God. These, these words come from an embittered heart, uh, from a person who, who has no hope left. He is saying, God, he takes no notice of me. He doesn't care. That's what he is saying. Now, if only, if only God-fearing people never feel that way, and if only Christians never feel so hopeless. But the nation and the people that are saying that, they just learned that they have escaped the Assyrian captivity only to be taken as captives by Babylon. That's what they just learned. Do you remember how God miraculously delivered Judah from the powers of Assyria? But then Hezekiah sinned. He was arrogant before God. And as the consequence of his sin, God said uh, uh, through the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah saying, because of what you have done, your sons will be taken and be made eunuchs, and the nation will be taken as captives in Babylon. That's why they're saying this. You see, they thought they had just escaped their death. They had just escaped the menacing power of the Assyrian Empire, only to find out, oh no, the troubles are not over, because they will be taken as captives into Babylon. That is why they're saying, where is God? He doesn't care. And I think we say something similar too. When the harsh experience of life have drained us of all light from our souls. If only, if only God-fearing people never feel this way. If only Christians never feel this way. But truth of the matter is that the people felt abandoned by God. And we too often feel hopeless and in a dark place. And the question is, what? What can drive away this darkness? And the only thing that can drive away a great darkness is a great God. And that is what we see here in this passage. And the first thing that Isaiah draws our attention to is the God who is high and exalted. The God who is high and exalted. Because only a big God can deliver us from big problems. And that is why Isaiah displays here for, for us God's glory, that we might get a glimpse of his glory. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked of the heavens with the span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Do you know that the astrophysicists today, with all the advanced advancement of science and, and the supercomputers at their disposal, they still cannot measure the size of the universe. God has measured it. Do you know that you cannot weigh Earth? You can only guess and approximate. God has measured it in a scale. Do you know that the ocean is vast? The oceans that, that we have on this little planet, God holds it in the hollow of his hand. What is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying that God, he is not one unusual or special part of this world. Rather, he stands above the cosmos as its Lord. No man can truly fathom the vastness of our world, but God holds it in the hollow of his hand and determines its worth as easily as a merchant who measures a small object on a scale. That's the picture that Isaiah is drawing for us. That is to say, God... God has complete mastery over things, the unbelievable grand scope of which we can hardly begin to imagine. That's who God is. Unbelievably high and exalted, unimaginably powerful. He has mastery over all things, but no one has mastery or sway over God. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? God doesn't need man's help. He doesn't need man's help any more than a man carrying a bucket of water seeks permission from a drop of water that falls from the bucket. And God is not impressed by man any more than a man cleaning his scale is impressed by the fine dust that has settled on it and it blows it away. Well, let me ask you. Listen to what he says. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Coastlands, islands. That's the landmass that you see standing on the coast. To God, the nations, continents, islands are like drops of water and fine dust. Is there any man then that can impress God? or make God his debtor? By no means. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That's what God thinks about the most valued, revered, honored people of this world. Grasshoppers, nothings, and nobodies. That is to say, we need to see here how God is not at all like how he is in the mind of so many people today. So many people think of God almost as if he's a timid little girl, so impressed with man's so-called free will that he does nothing apart from asking man's permission. And we think of God almost as if he is a little puppy who comes with his tail wagging whenever we call on him, but we can send him away as soon as we are bored with him. It's not even at all like that. Listen to what Isaiah says. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The innumerable heavenly bodies, the stars and the planets, Isaiah says, are like pets to God. He calls their name, and they come. And every single one of them, they obey. When he calls them, they come. When he dismisses them, they go away. Do you get a sense here, the point that Isaiah is trying to get across? God is highly exalted. He is transcendent far above the mortal, insignificant beings of dust that you and I are. He is highly exalted. That's the first thing Isaiah wants us to see. But then there's something else that Isaiah shows, uh, shows us here. And the thing that he shows us is almost sounds contradictory. God is on the one hand high and exalted. He is transcendent. He is above and beyond this cosmos. As great and vast as this world is, God considers it as dust, nothing. But at the same time, Isaiah tells us that God is near and present. God is near and present. This is the fear that we would have. If nations are like a drop from a bucket, and if its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, what makes you think, what makes us think that God cares about our little problems. You see, that is the logical conclusion. If God is so high and exalted, he dwells in eternity, and if he dwells in eternity and outside of time, what is a lifespan of 70, 80, 90 years to him? And what does he care? What happens to us? Dust. 
And if God is merely transcendent, high and exalted, far above this world, he holds the universe in the, in the hollow of his hands, we would have no reason to think that God cares about anything that happens in our lives. And I think that's in part what is driving these people to say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. You see, these people, they were raised from their childhood to know that God is great. They knew that for sure. And they could not imagine why God would care about them. And in fact, they are convinced that God doesn't care at all. (laughs) My right is disregarded. That word right, it's the same word that is in other places translated as justice. And they are saying, I am being denied what I am owed. I am being cheated. I am being hurt. But God doesn't care. And of course, do you care about fine dust or drop of water? You don't, and I don't. They are inconsequential nuisance, and we don't give them a second thought at all. And so what what mystery Isaiah is conveying to us is that on the one hand, God is high, he is exalted, he is transcendent. That's what transcendent means. But at the same time, this is, uh, this is a theological word. He is imminent. He is near. He is present in the troubles of his people. And God's unimaginable strength does not make him unsympathetic to us. Rather, he becomes our strength. So verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God? And the point that Isaiah is making is that not that since the Lord is everlasting, he stands over and above and beyond time. Isaiah is not saying that the everlasting God does not care about creatures who are here but for a moment. Rather, he is saying, the Lord is the everlasting God, and because he is the everlasting God, there is no time, there is no moment, there is no second, there is no hour when God is not absolutely sovereign, watching over his people. That's what Isaiah is saying. And then he says, have you not known, have you not heard, he is the creator of the ends of the earth. And that is not to say that since God is the Lord of everything, how can he possibly care about one insignificant individual? That's not the point. Rather, he is the creator of the ends of the earth. That is to say, there is not one place, there is not one corner of the universe where God is not absolutely powerful. For his people. Have you not known? Have you not heard? He does not faint or grow weary. There is 
no situation that leaves God exhausted. Have you not heard, have you not known, his understanding is unsearchable. There is no conundrum that stumps God. And where is Isaiah going with this? If he, he dwells in eternity, it means that there is no time, no moment where he is not, when he is not sovereign and powerful for his people. And if he is the Lord over the ends of the earth, there is not one place, one corner where we are hidden from God's loving care. There's nothing that tires God. There's no question that leaves him confused. That is to say, God is strong for his people. And the reason Isaiah had us think about how big, how transcendent, how powerful he is, is so that we might know that God uses his unimaginable strength, wisdom, and being for the good of his people. And so Isaiah says, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. That is to say, it is simply not possible for Israel's situation to become so twisted and so knotted that God is robbed of his majesty. It is not possible for your life and my life to become so uh, unbelievably ruined that God cannot overcome it with grace. That is simply not possible. Even youths shall faint. The people in the prime of their lives may collapse exhausted because of the hardness of life. Even the young people who have been conditioned to be strong, even they fall short. But God's strength is more than enough. And he says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is a beloved passage, isn't it? The word wait, they who wait for the Lord, that's the word that in other places is translated as hope. They who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. You see what God is saying to the nation and the people who have just discovered that everything is over. They thought they had just escaped death. They thought the Assyrians have now withdrawn. They are safe. They have a bright future ahead of them, only to learn that the Babylonians are coming against them. To them who have just realized, who have just just learned that they have been deprived and robbed of their future and security and life, who feel abandoned by God, who feel hopeless, God is saying to them, 
hope in me. Wait on me, and I will give you, and I will renew strength. And this is what God says to you and to us. Hope in me. There is no time, there is no place, no situation, no question that can ever make God surrender His purposes, His wisdom, His plans to bless His people. God who is highly exalted, He who is transcendent, He is also near and present in the lives and the troubles of his people. And that brings us to the conclusion, who is like our God? Who is like our God? Did you note how in verse 18, Isaiah taunts the idols of man's making? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses a wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. It's a bit a tongue-in-cheek. Isaiah is saying, you, you make an idol out of gold, but you're so afraid of being stolen, you have to cast the chains to lock it down. You cast an idol, if you can afford gold and silver, you cast an idol, make an idol out of a piece of wood, but you are afraid that it will topple and fall over. So you have to nail it down to the ground. And this is how Isaiah taunts the idols that man makes. But why? Now, you know that, that the second commandment, forbids representing God in a visible form. Uh, surprisingly, this is something that many Christians have trouble with today. And then as now, people depict God in terms of familiar objects or creatures, but the Bible says you should not do that. But the reason people... Uh, make visible representations of God, whether in terms of an object or creature that they're familiar with, you know, even the ancient people did not think, they were not so foolish as to think that their God dwelt in that idol. It was always a representation of a God that they believed in. And they, they cast the gods in the images of the things that they were familiar with in order to make their God feel near them, in order to feel closer to their God. But the nations, Isaiah says, the nations are as dust before God. And so representing that God by human craft does not bring God near us, but it diminishes the glory of the high and exalted God. There is nothing like God on earth by which God can be represented. 
There's nothing on earth in this cosmos that can rightly depict and represent the transcendent majesty of God who holds the universe in his hand. And even if the idol is of gold or silver or fine piece of lumber, you know, an idol is by definition man dictating how God comes near us. An idol, by definition, is man having mastery over God, telling him what he needs to look like, how he needs to behave, and how he needs to approach us. That is why the second commandment forbids making images to worship, and that is why Isaiah is taunting the useless idols that people make. But there's something more, because God has reserved his right to represent himself visibly, and God reserved that right until the coming of his Son. It is in the coming of his Son, Jesus Christ, that God came to us in a visible way. And it is in the coming of Jesus Christ that the high and exalted God, who by his word the world was created, who by his power the universe is upheld, John chapter 1, It is the word of God, and by the word of God, the world, the cosmos, was created. And so it is in the coming of Jesus Christ that the transcendent God of glory comes to be present and near the broken people, the needy people, the suffering people, the troubled people. That is why we see in Jesus both the transcendent glory of God and his gentle nearness, his compassion, his mercy. And it is in Jesus that we see, in his lowly birth, in his perfect resisting of temptation, in his spotless holiness, in his death and resurrection, It is in Jesus we see the power of God that gives us hope and a future. And isn't it interesting because it was in fact Jesus. It was in fact Jesus who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's what these people are crying out in this chapter, isn't it? Just in a different word. Where is God? Why does he not answer? You see, Jesus, he knows the pain of not seeing light in darkness. He knows what it's like to pray and feel like God is not answering you. And he knows what it's like to be abandoned by God. But the the truth, the gracious and wonderful thing is that Jesus was forsaken and he alone was forsaken, that we, you and I, 
we might never be forsaken by God because he was truly abandoned by God, bearing our sins. We only feel abandoned at times. Now, that is not to make light of the darkness that we sometimes experience because being people in Christ to become like him means that we experience a little bit of what he himself experienced. And so it is by God's gracious purpose that at times we have experiences that are like what Jesus experienced. He was abandoned. And you and I will at times feel like we have been abandoned. He cried to God and God did not answer. And you and I, because we have to experience a little bit of what Jesus experienced, you and I, it will seem to us that we pray but God does not answer. But only Jesus was ever truly forsaken and abandoned. And our part is to experience just in small measure what Jesus experienced for us, that our hearts might fill be filled with gratitude and praise for Jesus, all the while knowing that we are never truly forsaken, all the while knowing we are truly never abandoned by God, that God's Spirit dwells in us and hears our prayers. And it was Jesus who collapsed exhausted under the weight of the cross that you and I would never know such crushing burdens. And so I say this to you, brothers and sisters. You may at times feel like you are in a very dark place where it seems all hope is lost. God doesn't seem to answer. And all you feel around you is darkness. And at times, you too might find yourself saying, where is God? Why doesn't he care? Wait for the Lord. That is to say, hope in God. He knows your troubles. He knows how exhausted you are. He knows how dark your days are. And he knows how lonely you are. And as you hope in God, he will renew your strength. And as you hope in God, you will overcome. And as you hope in God, you will know joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us how, how powerful, how transcendent and glorious you are. And that your power and your glory do not make you unsympathetic towards us, but that you come near us with your power and with your glory to lift us up out of our darkness, our grief, and our sorrow. And I pray, Father, especially for those who are weary, who are exhausted, who are tired, who have collapsed, or are on the verge of doing so, that you will lift up their hearts to hope in you, to wait on you, and may they know 
your strength and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.